Hey, good morning. Oh, it's great to see you this morning. For those of you that are joining us on campus, for those of you that are joining us through church at home, boy, we're really thrilled to have you. What a great crowd we have at our nine o'clock service. This is really good. You guys got up early. Early bird gets the worm, right? And so you guys get the donuts is what you get. I don't know if you noticed, but I think we have some out there today. Getting back to a little bit of normal, right? Possibly, I don't know. But we are glad that you are here, both joining us on campus and church at home. Hey, I want to share something with you. We've already talked to you about it for a moment this morning, and that is our Thanksgiving bags. They're out in the lobby. And what we would love for you to do is to grab one or two when you leave today and to fill those up and bring them back next Sunday morning for us. We feed every year over 200 families a full Thanksgiving meal, and it's because of you and your generosity. And we want to say thank you so much for providing that. It's a way, of, it's a way for us to love on our community and provide for them. And what we do, we model Christ as how Christ provides for us. And so we would love for you to be a part of that and joining us in this, our Thanksgiving uh, basket for this year. And so grab a bag when you leave. Those of you that are, are joining us from church at home, you can come by this week and pick up one. The staff is here. We're here um, Tuesday through Fridays, and you can come by and pick up one of these. Check out on uh, social media. It'll give you opportunities also of days that we'll be here to hand these out and bring them back next week. Inside is also an envelope for you to put some money in there. And you say, Mark, what do we need money for? Well, that's to cover the cost of the turkey and the pie. Because what would Thanksgiving be without turkey, right? Isn't that right? Yes. Um, you know, it's either turkey or smoked trout, right? Yes. And nobody wants smoked trout. All right. So it is uh, a turkey and a Thanksgiving uh, or a pie for 14 bucks. And also there's a shopping list on there. I mean, we take all the work out of it for you. So we want you just to go by, take your family and go by and do that also. Hey, listen, Tuesday, this past Tuesday, what a privilege, right? We got to vote. That was an amazing thing. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We got to vote and express ourselves as, as Americans on election day. Maybe you voted early. That's fine. But what a wonderful privilege, not a right, but a God-given privilege that you and I have to live in this country to be able to express ourselves through voting. And can I tell you that that privilege didn't come free? It doesn't come free. It came to you and I through that of the sacrifice of veterans and this Wednesday is Veterans Day. I don't know, maybe you've forgotten about that, but this Wednesday is Veterans Day. And so we want to say this morning, because we were able to express ourselves through our voting this past Tuesday, thank you to all of our veterans who have worked and continue to work to provide our freedom so that we can come and worship today and we can express ourselves in voting as Americans. So for a moment, those of you that are here that are veterans or those of you that are joining us from church at home, could all of us in the room give our veterans a big hand this morning? Amen? We're so thankful for you. Thank you so much for giving of yourself selflessly for our uh, freedoms as Americans. And I want to say to you that, listen, the world is a hurting place. Understand that. And there's so much going on around us. I think that sometimes as something continues in our culture, we sort of become comfortable with it or it becomes part of our fabric. And, and so I wanted to mention to you today about COVID-19 and the pandemic that we find ourselves in. That there are, there's a lot of pain because of that in our community. We've had people this very week, um, Pam and Mickey Honeycutt, other people that I could just go through a list of you that has been in and out of the hospital and in the hospital actually today because of COVID-19. Reba and I lost two very, very dear friends of ours this week. In fact, I spoke at one of their funerals 
uh, this Wednesday morning due to COVID. And so it, it is a real thing in our community, and we cannot forget that. And we need to continually be praying about that. We continually need to, to be careful in those areas, do what we can do to protect those in our community that are more vulnerable than we are. And, and so I want to say thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for the prayers of those that are suffering. Hey, pray for our health care workers. Amen. They're, they're working very long hours and placing themselves at great risk and their families at risk also um, during this pandemic. And we want to say to you that uh, thank you for your prayers and, and remembering those people that are suffering this morning. Grab your Bibles. The book of Romans this morning. Yeah, I'm excited about that. You say, Mark, this has been like 12 weeks and we're just in chapter Six. Well, that is fairly normal for me, for us anyway, right? So Romans chapter six today, the second half, we covered the first half last week, and that is starting at verse 15 in a moment as we talk about what I call domesticating dangerous sin. Now, I have a question for you as we start our study together, and it's this. How many of you have ever slept out under the stars, you're camping, not in a tent, not in an RV, okay? And we call camping uh, in an RV camping, but really it's like a hotel room on wheels, right? But how many have ever slept out under the stars in a sleeping bag? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Let me see your hands. Good. Tremendous. That's awesome. Now, in South Carolina, that's a lot of fun, right? If it's in the wintertime, yes. But in the middle of the summer, it's not as much fun as it would be in, in the, um, the wintertime. Well, I remember that I have done this during the summertime. And, and I think about you know, those moments. You have a great day. You're hiking. You sit around a fire. And you've got to have a fire, even though you are sweating you know, profusely. You've got to have a fire. That's the part about camping. And then when the fire starts to die down, the stars are out, then it's time to get in your sleeping bag. But in South Carolina, we have this thing. We call it our state bird. You know what it is? It's the mosquito, right? Yes, exactly right. Yes, that's the state bird of South Carolina, the mosquito. And, and so, you know, there has to be a strategy for you to, to get into a sleeping bag without being eaten alive. So first of all, you spray yourself down with a repellent. You keep all of your clothes on. You get in the bag. You zip it up as quick as you can. I have a mummy bag, so it comes up around my head. It has a little hole right here for my nose to stick out, right? And I get in, and I do this act that only a magician could do. I take off my clothes while in the bag, because I don't want to be eaten alive by mosquitoes. I have this little hole for my nose to stick out of to breathe, and I am sweating like nobody's business inside that bag. And then you try to get comfortable, and you really can't. This is why we call camping enjoyable, right? Yes, and you try to get comfortable, and, and all of a sudden things get quiet around you, and you hear the noise. And what do you hear? Bzz, you hear that everywhere, right? Yes, you do, because you know that they want in there where you are is what they want. That's exactly what they want. You even hear them discussing how they're going to drag you out of that bag, take you in the woods, and eat you alive. You hear that discussion among the mosquitoes, right? And so you realize that they want in to where you are. When what we learned last week about sin in those first 14 verses of chapter 6 is that after conversion, Christ comes into our life and, and he becomes the master of our life, the ruler of our life. Sin is now that external power of our lives that tempts us. And what sin continually wants to do is wants back in here. It wants in here in my heart 
where it can, again, rule my life and control my life and dominate my life is what it wants. It's much like the mosquito. And so you spend all night long trying to fight off to keep them out of the bag with you. And that is where we find ourselves in life. You say, Mark, thank you for the encouraging message this morning. No, it is true. But what verse 15 says to us is this. It says, what then? Paul kind of starts out this next segment very much like he started out the first 14 verses. He says, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means, he says. It's another rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a statement in the form of a question. The first being in verse 1 was that he, don't, he doesn't want us to draw this false assumption about that of, well, if we sin more, then we're going to have more grace, you know? So like we said last week, so bring the debauchery on. That makes sense to me. The more I sin, the more grace I'm going to get. So I'm just going to go out and sin. But what he was talking about is this, about sin continuing to reign in my heart as a believer. Because remember, Romans is a letter to the church at Rome. Romans is a letter to the church at Rome. And so what he simply is saying is that he's writing to the believer about sin reigning in in their hearts. And now what he's saying is that this new question that we have today, it's about, hey, we learned last week that no longer are we under the law, but we're now under grace. And because we're now under grace and not under the law, that we can kind of sin freely because grace will cover everything and God understands and God will, will forgive us. So grace has replaced the law that we could never keep. It was all designed for to push you and I to God. And because grace has replaced the law, then, hey, it's on again, right? Because there's just grace and God will forgive me and no worries in life. But what it is, this rhetorical question really comes to a point for you and I today. And that point is, how serious do we take the sin of our lives? How serious do you and I take the sin of our lives? And Paul makes this absolutely clear because he doesn't, doesn't want you and I to walk away from all of this with, I think, this, um, this misunderstanding of what he's saying. And then he uses a metaphor. We're going to read it in just a moment in verse, in, in verse 16. But he uses the metaphor of slavery and that of the emancipation from slavery. That we're no longer living under sin. You and I, Christ now is that central power of our life. That sin is this marginal power out here around us externally that tempts you and I to sin. And so he talks, he uses this metaphor of slavery. That we're no longer under sin in the law, but we're now under this age of grace. But Paul teaches us with a very powerful twist. It's what we call a paradox. And what he says to you and I this morning in this text is that we've been freed from slavery of sin, mastery of sin within our lives, to become, and the, the verse says these very words, to become slaves to God in righteousness. But there's a difference between that of sin mastering my life and me submitting my life to God. Because when sin masters my life, man, that's about hostility. And the goal of all of that is always, excuse me, in my life, death. But that when God simply rules my life, then it's about love and it's about grace because that's the heart of God. That one leads to death, the other leads to life is what he's talking about. But before I read verse 15 to you, I have to talk to you about this word slavery. I think it's important that we talk about it for a moment. 
And it, and it sometimes maybe makes us a little uncomfortable in having this discussion, but I think it's a discussion that you and I have to have today because as we read through these texts throughout the rest of this chapter, Paul uses this metaphor a lot. He really does. Why would Paul use a metaphor writing to a church in Rome, writing this letter to Christians? Why would he use a metaphor of slavery? Why? And, and, and it's very powerful imagery here that he uses because in the city of Rome, historians tell us that 85 to 90 percent of all the citizens of Rome had been a slave or were currently a slave. And so it's a powerful image for them to understand. And it's a very powerful image for you and I to understand. You say, but Mark, I have never been in slavery in my life. Wait a minute. Hang on before you make that statement, because I think it's important that you understand what Paul is using as an image for you and I. Because Paul, when he uses this term, he really is referring to mostly what we call indentured servitude. And indentured servitude simply means that it is, it is slavery. Yes, it is a slave, but yet it is a slave that has willfully submitted himself to another individual to pay off a debt. So it's a willful submission of yourself to someone or something else. And when you think about it in that light, then you can see how that really uh, touches my heart and how that touches my life. It really does. Indentured slaves, they didn't work for a salary. They worked to pay off something that they owed someone. It's a terrible economic system. Don't get me wrong. It's not the forced kidnapping of an ethnic group and bringing them to another country or continent so that they can be treated less than what other people might treat their livestock. It's not that at all. It's not about forced labor. But can I say something to you? And I think we need to hear this this morning, that God makes it very clear what he thinks about slavery in the Bible. Understand this. He makes it extremely clear for you and I. He doesn't pull punches in any way about this, about what slavery looked like in the past in our country and what slavery looks like in the world today because it still exists. Don't fool yourself. It still exists. In fact, it exists in our very country today through human trafficking. It has happened recently around us in, in the upstate of South Carolina. Just read the news, search it online, and you can read the articles. And it is an absolute deplorable and despicable thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can read these verses to, for yourself later, 8 through 10. We find that it simply plumps that of slavers in the, in the area of being liars and perjurers. It says that it is what makes up unsound doctrine. So, in fact, in the book of Exodus chapter 12, 21, it says that the punishment of slavery should be death. So, make no mistake. God in no way condones slavery. Are we good on that? Can I say amen? Yes. In no way does he. So I think that's an important part, point that you and I make together. But what is Paul's point here to me? It's this, that if you offer yourself continually to something or someone, you become a slave to that thing that you obey in life. It's the enslaving quality of sin for you and I. Because the mark of slavery is that of constant obedience in our lives is what it is. When it comes to our sin, that you surrender yourselves to something, that you cease the fight. 
You cease the battle against that thing. You unzip the sleeping bag and you just lay it open and say, okay, mosquitoes, have your way with me, right? That's, that's exactly what this is about, that you voluntarily become obedient. Your obedience is voluntary. That's why he uses that of indentured servitude. You become the willing servant of a lifestyle. Wow. It makes sense when I read this next verse, why he uses this imagery of slavery. It does make great sense to you and I. And when I read this, and I have to read because there's so much good stuff in these verses, that when I read this, I have to remind myself of who he's writing to. He's writing to people that, like you and I, he's writing to the church. It's a letter to the church at Rome. It's a letter to us sitting in this room. It's a letter to those of us that are sitting at home in our living room through church at home this morning. It's that about of you and I simply submitting ourselves willfully to a lifestyle as Christians. And Paul challenges the choices that we make. He said, you have a choice here. You either that of sin of your life or you choose that of being obedient to God is what he's saying. Because something is going to control our lives. Oh no, I'm a free spirit. Nothing controls me. Can I tell you, something controls your life life it does yes we all have a controlling agent within our lives when you go to lunch today if you go to a restaurant and you and you order you know you know you order the most expensive meal on there you're going to get a steak and a lobster kind of thing and you're going to eat real big and then you know you decide to to dine and dash you know what dining and dashing means do you know what that means should we ask how many's ever done that let's don't ask okay let's just move on then, then let me show you how that you are under control of something. You're not going to get very far. Understand that. It's not going to happen because there are laws against you doing that. So there's a controlling agent in all of our lives. Neutrality in life is impossible. With your experience with Christ, neutrality is impossible. Because even if you say, I'm going to be neutral in my life and my spiritual life, that I, that I have neutrality um, that it's sinful within itself because what you're saying in your neutrality is that you refuse to serve God. So it gets us to this first point. It's verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that's why we talked about this so we could set the stage for this, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. It's the perils of attempting to domesticate a dangerous sin within our lives. We understand how this works. Let me recap for a moment from last week that simply before that of conversion within our life, sin is the the controller of our lives. Christ is that external power around us. And so he draws us to himself by his loving kindness. We come to that moment of our realization of our need for him, but he initiates that within our lives. He draws us to him. We come to that point of conversion after we are converted with Christ. Then what we do is Christ becomes the central power of our life, influencing the way we think and our mind and our hearts. Then sin is that external life, external temptation that simply is around us. And he exists in the margins of our lives. What does sin want with me? Sin wants control of you. That's it. Sin wants control of your life. It's out there working in the margins of your life all the time. 
And if we stop fighting it, if we stop making a stand within our life, you say, Mark, that's the problem. I don't have the power to do that with myself. And that is the most correct statement you'll probably make today. You don't. What, what gives us the power to simply fight off the sin of our lives is that of the recognition of who we are in Christ and that Christ lives within us. And the more we believe who we are in God and what God has done for us, the greater power we have to fight off those areas in our life where sin would want to enslave us. Because sin is no longer the ruler of our life. As a Christian, sin no longer rules our lives. It no longer holds us captive. But can I say, here's the but, right? You always hate the but part, right? But it still can invade. It still can control areas of your life and my life. The enemy can still have a stronghold in the life of a Christian. That's important that you understand that. Christ has broken the ultimate control of sin over our life. But sin still exists in the margins of our lives. We're living in the already, but the not yet. That the work of Christ is complete, but it's not perfected in my life yet until that of my glorification. Either I leave this world by death or by his return. It's not. And as I live in this world, I don't live powerlessly. I don't live in a a world that simply is defeated or I'm defeated. No, Christ is the internal power of my life. And through that power that exists within me, then I can make good decisions. I make bad ones sometimes, but I can keep sin in the margins of my life. It's why, it's why you don't keep dangerous animals as pets, right? Right? Okay, let's, let's just do this. How many of you have ever had a snake for a pet? Let me see your hand. Really? Seriously. Okay, I knew Nathan had, yes. He begged for that. We'll be praying for you at the end of the service, right? When I was in college, um, this guy down the hall, he snuck into our dorm. You're not supposed to have pets in the dorm, right? But he, he snuck into our dorm a pet tarantula, okay? Now, that, that is a, a strange animal, a spider with very long fuzzy hair, right? It's, it's, it's terrifying. It really is. And it's big. This tarantula was probably as big as the palm of my hand or bigger. It's big. And, and so that he would take it out and play with it. And he brought it to our room one night. I remember this specifically. He brought it to our room one night. And I was sitting on my bed. And he just chunks it on me like that, right? Okay. Well... I was a college student at a Christian college, and I didn't say, praise the Lord. Okay, that's not what I said. I didn't say, oh, Jesus, either. The first word I said was, oh, but the second word was not Jesus. Okay? (laughs) You figure that one out, okay? But what I realized is that You don't keep dangerous animals as pets because I do remember the night that it got out of his cage and we never found that thing again. And every night when we would go to bed, it was always pulling off the sheets, looking under the mattress, trying to find that tarantula, right, that escaped. You don't do that. 
And when people do, and then the animal attacks them, they always say, but oh, they're so gentle. No, they're not. That's not true. They're just waiting for the moment when you drop your guard and you become comfortable, you forget about their potential to harm you because they are always looking at you thinking about how you taste. Okay, understand it. Realize something about the sin of your life. And it's this. Sin is a predator always working for dominance in your life. Let's call it for what it is. As a Christian, man, you can kind of, you know, touch it and back up and pet it every once in a while, you know. This is your pet over here, and you can do that. But the reality is it is always working for dominance in your life because you don't wake up one day and just think you're going to throw your life away, do you? You don't. You don't wake up one day and just think, oh, you know, this is an amazing day that God has made. So today I think I'm going to ruin my marriage or I'm going to start an addiction or I'm going to separate myself from the ones that really love me and care about me because of a lifestyle that I've chosen. You don't jump right into the middle of huge sins within your life. No, that's not the way it works. It's slow. It's, it's it in increments. It's, it's unassuming. It exists in the margins of my life. It's out there. But Christ is the power that rules internally within me. But the sin of this world exists in the margins of my life. And how do I see that sin in my life? How do you see your unforgiveness that you're harboring? And how do you receive, Mark, you can move on after that. No, how do you receive, how do you look at the pride in your life, right? How, how do you look at the thoughts that you've had toward other people during this election cycle? Come on now, that'll preach, right? That you, you know that's true, right? How, how have you dealt with all that? How have you prejudged people because of the way they look or the way they act? How have you done all the things? How do you see the sin of your life? Oh, I'm not doing anything to harm anybody else, Mark. I'm just being myself, you know. I, I, I'm just doing my own thing here. And, and, that kind of, and I'm not a slave to anything. You're fooling yourself if you think, and I'm fooling myself if we don't think that we become enslaved, that sin is a predator working for dominance in my life. It's like you trying to have an 800-pound gorilla as a pet. It's not going to turn out good for you at some point. Because you're going to look better than a banana. No, true, right? Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms. That's why he talks to us about slavery. That's what he's doing. He's making, uh, he's creating this imagery for them to understand. I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Life is a series of intentional decisions. When I read this, I thought, man, what is he saying? He's not, and, and I think that's really important that we get this down to the point of what he's really saying here. He's not saying to the church at Rome, hey, you have lost control of your life and you've given your life completely over to sin, so now sin is completely controlling and mastering you. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying this, that sin has lost its control over your life, absolutely, but sin is not yet powerless. That where you are today, don't lose sight of this, he's saying, is a work of grace. God has initiated this work of his grace within your life. You're no longer sins to, you are no longer slaves to sin, 
But he says this, but you also presented your bodies as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What is it? It's a choice. Yes. Sin becomes a choice in our lives. I think we have to start there. It's where it begins. My mom always told me growing up, listen, in high school and my first year of college, until I met Reba, I was a hellion. I, I really was. I'm just going to lay it right out there. You know, I was. And, and then I met Reba, and then I realized that she would not date me if I was a hellion. So I had to change for that. And God used all that. Go figure all that out and how that works out. But that's the truth. That, that's the truth. It is. Yes. And my mom would always say, me, say to me, son, she would call me son. I was the only one that she had. And she would say to me, son, you will reap what you sow. And I always thought, man, what is that about? You know, what am am I sowing? And what I realized is she's talking about my decisions in life. And I thought, why can't we just float through life and remain neutral? Why do we have to make decisions? Why do we have to choose sides in life? Why can't we just remain neutral? And what I realized is this because we're all worshipers and we worship something, right? We, we, we worship something. It's the way that God created us, that we attach value to things. And when we attach value to something, what we say in our life is, listen, I must, I must have this to be happy. And without this, I will never be happy in life. And so I got to have this. And what I realized when I go back to the book of Genesis, that you and I were designed to worship God and, and God alone. Then temptation in the book of Genesis shows up in the margins of the population of the world. Both of them, right? Two of them. Adam and Eve. It shows up in the margins of their lives. And what happens is humanity has to make a decision. As you have to make a decision. And I make a decision. So many of them throughout the day of my life that we make a decision. And what humanity's decision was that this thing that I can't have, I got to have because it is the only true way to happiness within my life. And they made that decision from the very beginning of time. God expressed to you and I his sovereignty, but he lovingly revealed to you that we have a responsibility. So we make this decision that life is a series of intentional decisions. You chose to get up this morning and come to church. You did. You chose to drive the route that you drove to church. You made that intentional decision. We could have a great discussion about God's sovereignty in light of your decision. And there is this fine balance between that of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. But what I realize is this, that we were all made to worship something. David... uh, David Pallison, David Pallison is a phenomenal author and Christian counselor. And David Pallison says that all of our idols fall into four categories, and he calls them root idols. So can we take a little test together this morning? Are you ready? Here it is. The four idols, the first is power. The first idol in all of our lives is power. It is. We long for influence and some recognition, sometimes through money, sometimes through position, but it's about power. You say, Mark, I don't have that problem in my life. Move on. Okay, let's go to the next one. It's about control. Ah, now we're getting a little closer in your life, maybe, right? 
Because I just want everything to go my way. I do. And according to my plan. And everything in the future, I want it to go according to my plan. I don't like uncertainty. I don't like uncertainty. If you could describe 2020 in one word, it might be what? Uncertainty, right? Yes. I don't like uncertainty. When the plan is altered, well, how do I respond? I get angry. I, I'm frustrated and I'm impatient. Well, Mark, I don't have a problem with control, okay? So I wish you'd just hurry up and move on, okay? Well, that you're trying to control me. So hang on. Here's the other thing, right? It's approval. Yeah, it's approval. I just want to be accepted. I want somebody to desire me, right? I can't be happy unless others are happy with me. Not like they're joining on and being happy along with me. I want them to be happy with me. I want them to accept me. Criticism is devastating to me in life. So I find myself doing the wrong things in life so I don't have to deal with disapproval of other people. I, I, I put this down. I added this to, to Polison's list. I said, it's approval that I crave more than banana pudding. And I love banana pudding, right? So I crave this more than anything. Well, I don't have that problem. Well, what about comfort? Life is about pleasure. Man, I confuse the fullness of life with the sensual delights of life. It's about sexual fulfillment in life. It's about a a better house or a bigger vacation or the latest car or food or comfort. So I want to stop for a moment and give you an opportunity to respond. I'm not going to ask you to shout it out or raise your hand. But if you have your notes with you, if you have your phone with you or whatever you have to to, to record this on, what is your biggest root idol? Right now, think about it. What is your? Could you could you put those back up so they can see them? Because see, yeah, I'm trying to control you. I know, but there's power and there's control and there's approval and there is comfort. Which which of those is your biggest root idol? Mark, I didn't come to church to have to really be honest about myself. I know it, it stinks, doesn't it? When you have to do that, right? But which of those is your biggest ones? Hey, you want me to tell you mine? You want to know them? Oh, well, one person wants to know. Good, that's terrific. I appreciate that. That, that, actually, that actually makes me feel approved that you said that. Okay, and I, I, I thank you for that. I have two of them. I have two of them. I thought about this a lot last night. The first one of mine, I think, is control because I do get frustrated when things don't go my way. I don't know. Anybody else? Raise your hand if you get frustrated when things don't go your way. That's, that's good. Thank you. All right. Reba could, could contest it. I, I have that sometimes, right? I'm standing in front of the TV at 1230 last night screaming at my football team, you know, and, and they're, not, they're not listening to me. I'm coaching you from the living room, and you're not listening to me. And you didn't listen And look what happened, right? (laughs) And the second of mine is approval. Yeah, it's control and approval. That I I love, I want to be accepted. I do. And there's some reasons in my life that I deal with that. And I could go into that, but that's for another time and another talk. Yes. So what's yours? If you say, Mark, are these wrong? 
they're not wrong within themselves. And I think that's the important part that we need to talk about for a moment before we tie this up with verse 23. But here's when they're wrong in your life. They're wrong when they, <clears throat> excuse me, they're wrong when they control you. They're wrong when they become central in your life. When they become ultimate in your life, then those things become wrong. They become sinful when you can't live without them. When they compel your obedience and your actions. They become sin when they become enslaving. Idolatry is a problem of our heart. I don't think the question is about, well, what motivates me? Is that what you're talking about? I think it goes deeper in that. I think the big question is, who is the master of, the, of this pattern of thought within my life? And who's the master of the way that I feel every day? And who's the master of how I behave? So how do I repent? So how do I repent of the idol beneath the surface of my life? It's verse 23. It's where I end today. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's about freedom. And we read that and we've read that and we've heard that quoted. If you've been to church, you've heard it so many times. And we think, oh, that's about eternity. No, can I tell you, bring it back here. Bring it back to this moment in your life. It's about how you live now. It's about life here in this place. It's about how you're going to do life when you leave this place. It's about how you're going to navigate the experiences of your life this week. It's about what masters you. That's the question. What does master you in life? Christ is the external power, the internal power of your life. Understand that. And But for some of you, you're not doing well with that of the external struggles of your life. You're not doing well with that of the sins that exist in the margin of your life. And the more you allow sin to control areas of your life, the less life you experience in God. So I thought about this. Well... What about I'm longing for a promotion, Mark, because I want that increase in salary because I want to, you know, I, I want to care for my family in a better way. Is anything wrong with me wanting to make more money? Nothing is wrong with that. But it's the intensity of your desire that becomes sinful. Man, I want a relationship. I want to be accepted by this individual. Is anything wrong with me wanting a relationship with this person? No. But it's the links that you will go to to make that relationship happen that becomes sinful for you. John Calvin, who I love to quote, he says, The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. So how do I repent from this? How do I keep that sin in the margin of my life? It's not that I become more moral and it's not that I just check off more boxes in my life. It's not that, that I, I, I become more self-disciplined. No. To overcome these kinds of sins in my life is by seeing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. Understand that. To overcome these things, it's about who my eyes are fixed on. 
It's about who I'm gazing upon today. That I'm looking at something far more attractive than all these things in the margins of my life. And that thing far more attractive than all those things in the margins of my life is Christ. It's where my focus is. That everything in the margins of my life pale in in significance to the greatness of God. But what about power? It's about submitting to his greatest power. What about control? It's about submitting to his ultimate control of my life. Ah, What about comfort? It's about remembering that he's the greatest comfort in my life. What about approval? It's about realizing that he has unconditionally accepted me where I am at this moment of my life, dealing with all the sins of the margin of my life, that he has accepted me. Please know today, as I finish this with you, that sin is a force that seeks to dominate your life Keep it in the margins of your life. Struggle with it. Through God powerfully strengthening you, through you understanding who you are in Him, and that He is central to your life, struggle with those things. Because He is standing with you. For some of you, You need a moment of repentance today. You need a moment to come to God. I'm not questioning that you are saved or not. That's not my question with you this morning. But you need a moment of repentance where you confess that issue in your life, that area that you've been struggling with, that area that you allow the margins, the sins of the margins to sneak into every once in a while, and then you push them back out, and they come back in, and you push them back out. You confess that to God. He will strengthen you this morning. This is not just about saying no. And we tried that, right? It's far more than that. This is about you realizing who you are in Christ and where He stands in your life and how you see your sin and how I see mine. how I deal with the idols of my life. And he is here with you. So would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, we are your kids. You know us so well. So there's no need to sit here in pretense and hide anything from you. Our hearts and our minds are completely open to you like a book. And Father, first of all, we state the overwhelming and amazing fact that you accept us. Not some future perfected version of who we are, but you accept us today. 
And so, Father, there's no fear of us coming to you in honesty and transparency and being rejected. There's no fear of that at all today, God. So we cast out fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And you are perfect love. So, Father, we take this moment to open our hearts and our minds. We take this moment to lay our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our anger. We, we, we lay our power search before you. We lay our control, our search for acceptance within life and approval. God, we lay those things before you because you know us. God, we say, forgive us. But God, not just forgiving us, but Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us, Lord, as we walk this road of sanctification, that you walk it with us, and we know that. And God, that we fight this fight in the moments that when we give in, in the moments that we fail, there is grace and there is mercy that covers our lives. And we're so amazingly thankful for that, Lord. And so let us make you known to the world through our victories and through those moments when we don't get it right. And we find ourselves in great need of mercy and grace. So we focus on you. We take our mind off of those things that we desire so intently that we would almost do anything. God, we take our mind off of our failures and those moments that we've got it wrong. And we gaze upon you because your beauty is greater than all of those things. Thank you for your forgiveness in our life today. Thank you that you make all things new. And thank you that you strengthen us to fight the good fight. In your name we pray. 